Excellent. All right, so if you have your Bible, please turn to John chapter 4. We're going to be there in just a second, and uh, we're going to continue in our series in John. And uh, I, uh, I've been looking forward to preaching this for a while now, and uh, this morning, I generally get up very early on a Sunday morning, about 5 a.m. Uh, I'm, I'm a pretty early riser anyway, so it's not too much of an effort for me, because I've learned over the years that God has a tendency to take the sermon that I have put many hours preparation in and completely change it on Sunday morning, which kind of begs me think, well, why for the hours before, Lord? But you know what? It's all part of the preparation, and, and I'm good with that. But that's what happened this morning. So I, I really feel that this morning is a bit of a, a, a download for those of you who are here and uh, for the first time maybe, and, and you're just exploring Christianity, you're going to get a bit of a window into what it is that we really believe, what we hope for, what we desire for in God. And, and I'm praying and believing that will capture your heart and your spirit in a wonderful way. Uh, there's a book called Growing Young by Kara Powell. Kara works for the Fuller Institute, especially the youth department, does a lot of research in the latest youth trends. And this lady, uh, I listened to a podcast last summer, I was very impressed with her, she's phenomenally smart and, and uh, has tremendous understanding of our youth culture. She decided that they would embark on a huge study in North America where she uh, wrote to every mainline denomination, whether that be evangelical or Catholic or, or, or any mainline denomination, and asking for a list of churches that had seen a sudden uptick of millennials, so, and including Generation Y, so kind of 16 up to around about 35-ish. I might have my ages slightly wrong there, but generally that, why so there was a decline and then a sudden uptick, and suddenly this, these churches were attracting, if you like, young people, young adults, millennials, uh, when before they didn't. What was really interesting in the book was that Kara highlighted what it wasn't. There was, uh, oh sorry, I missed a bit of the story. So she, she got around about 350 churches, I believe, and wrote to all these churches with a very comprehensive survey questionnaire asking specific questions. They collated all the information. Then they started looking for commonalities across. What was it that suddenly caused young people in that culture or in that area to suddenly go to that church? It's a brilliant book, and I highly recommend that you read it. Part of the book was that she identified what it wasn't. Here are the things that weren't common factors. She goes even further to say that they bore no influence whatsoever on whether a young person wanted to stay in church or not, or whether a young person who was unchurched or de-churched. Unchurched, don't know Jesus. De-churched, used to go to church, no longer go to church but then they would come back, okay? So here are the things that it wasn't. First of all, it had size of church, had no influence whatsoever. Next one, a trendy location. Not sure what that means, but what I do know is we're not. For those of you who are new and you kind of needed your GPS, welcome to the south, okay? Uh, a trendy location, it, 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 so downtown or a cool building, nope. Movies. See, this is what's interesting for me as a pastor, is all the things that we hear as a pastor, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you must do this, you must do that. This book blew it all out of the water. Love it. Next one, Age of Congregation. Amen to that. Had no consequence at all. Older generation, younger generation, didn't matter. Young people don't care how old you are. Honestly, so if you think you're past it, you're not. And when I say young people, it doesn't really matter about young people so much. It doesn't matter what age you are. God has no concern about how old you are. You are as involved in ministry at whatever age you are, uh, and young people identify that. Next one, cool quotient. We've got bags of this thing. We've got so much cool quotient, we just kind of hand it out. We're so cool. Yeah. Uh, next one, modern building. Yeah, no, we don't do that either. Big budget, Brad. No, we don't have that either. <laughs> uh, contemporary worship. This was a big one. Oh, no, I'm, no. We have very contemporary worship. What they identified, though, was even only 15 years ago, high production value was very, very important to young people. Lights, lasers, smoke machines, fantastic music. 
you know, really good-looking hipster worship leader. Well, we've got one of them. We've got two. Uh, skinny jeans, you know, deep V-neck, all that kind of stuff. That had no bearing at all. In fact, they actually found out that the worship varied so dramatically from a cappella to, that's kind of brethren, right, Lyndon? A cappella? To uh, pipe organ, to big choirs, to orchestras, to contemporary, didn't matter. Love this. This is awesome. Watered down teaching. So, Young people identified that they wanted to be hit hard with the Word of God. So here's one of the complaints I get about my teaching sometimes. It's pretty tough. Okay, next question. Uh, Entertaining, program-driven ministry. That they weren't catering constantly with lots and lots of programs to try and attract kids in. See, I read this list and I went, man, we are set. We are set. We are set. Do you know what the number one, there were six commonalities, and I can't go through them all now, read the book, but the, one of the main commonalities is Jesus. You want to hear about Jesus? Not necessarily God, although part of the package. They don't want to hear about church and traditions and what, how it should be done and how it shouldn't be done. They want to know about Jesus. We are a Jesus-centered church. And Jesus is as fascinating now to young people and young adults and millennials as he was hundreds, thousands of years ago. People cannot wrap their minds around Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus, which is why I say his name Jesus as much as I possibly can in every sermon, Jesus. Because it's so powerful. Here's what Kara said. They long for churches to invite them into a journey of actively following Jesus. Not being afraid of mentioning Jesus, not being afraid of upsetting them, not being afraid of putting them off, but being blatantly unapologetic, pointing to Jesus all the time. Here's what one young person said. There is never a time, even in just catching a meal with someone from our church, that the gospel doesn't come into the conversation. The quality of the conversation with people from my church is consistently Christ-centered. The gospel comes up everywhere. If we are not gospel-centered in this church, it doesn't happen. Like We could do all sorts of different stuff. If it's not centered on the gospel, I'm not interested. Because it's Jesus that changed lives. Now, there were five other commonalities. One of them was giving them the keys to the car. In other words, inviting them into leadership and volunteering and and that kind of thing. Getting them involved, relationships, empathy. These are all things that came up. But the number one thing that I am so grateful for is that the gospel still works. Jesus still draws a crowd. And as a church, that might put off some people who are older... Because we unapologetically talk about sin and the cross and the wrath of God and, 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 and Jesus dying for our sins. And we talk about controversial subjects because that's the subjects that the young people, the millennials, are living out, not just reading about. They're living it out and they want to know it. And so when we come to this scripture, what we're actually going to see here is that consistently Christ-centered people of God filled with his power attract other people to it that there's a key there's something about the people of God filled with his power that actually see change in in societies I was driving down downtown the other day and I don't say this by by just shock value but it was just a reminder of the type of society and culture where broken hurting people desperate in need of transformation and change are walking our streets. I, I, was just, I was just sat at the traffic lights near Harvey going down onto Water Street, Pandosi, that, that kind of area. And this young lady, literally just meters away from me, she's probably 23, 24, with a long lineup of traffic. She comes into the traffic, starts yelling at the car in front of me. And so I'm like, you know, what's going on here? And clearly there was no real uh, connection between the two. And then the young lady goes back on the pavement and just strips off. And starts yelling at the... Like, strips off. I'm like, oh my goodness. And I'm like, oh Lord. God is from ever being too comfortable in the church that we, never fa- that we fail to see that. And not only see it, but actually respond to it. After this, Jesus went away to the other side. This is John chapter 4 of the Sea of Galilee. 
which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Our city is full of sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the Feast of Jews, was at hand. The first thing I want you to notice as we get into this is that Jesus still draws a crowd. He still draws a crowd. So on your chairs right now, you have very fancy postcards with Easter written on them. They are not for your, uh, you know, to stick on your fridge. I mean, although we'd be very happy for you to do that. What they're there for is for you to give out to somebody who doesn't know Jesus and invite them to Easter Sunday. Now, I'm going to say this in a very loving way, and I've been here uh, seven and a half years now. For those of you who've been around that long, you, you understand my heart. I'm not getting at anybody, but some Christians, obviously not in this room, but some Christians will struggle to think of a name to write on that card. And that's a whole other sermon. But the idea of this is that you give it to somebody who doesn't know Jesus and invite them to come to church. And not only invite them, don't say, hey, I'll meet you at church on Sunday because let's, let's face it, they're not going to find it anyway. Is I'll go with you. I'll, I'll meet you at Starbucks and we'll go in together. And don't be surprised when they come. Because people are still fascinated by Jesus. They still want to know about Jesus. They may be hurt by the church. They might be disillusioned by God. They might be angry at God. But they may not have made the connection that Jesus is God. And they'll be fascinated with Jesus. Do not be surprised when people come to church, when you invite them. So here's, here's my encouragement to you. I want you to take that postcard. Don't just slip it in the pocket in front of you. Take the postcard and then take it home. We'll do it right now. Write a name on it and go and, and, and see. And say, look, I, I got you this. I'd love for you to come to church on Sunday, on Easter Sunday with me. The service is going to be perfect for, for people who are just kind of thinking things through and you'll, you'll really enjoy it. Don't be surprised when they come. Don't be surprised when they come. Number two, I, I find it interesting in this passage that sign of, size of ministry is insignificant to Jesus. Jesus started with 12, went to 120, maybe a bit more, and then just a little bit after this, after this uh, account, goes back down to 12 again because he upsets them and they all bog off. Because he says something they don't like. So people left his church. And what I find fascinating is that Jesus doesn't chase after them and go, well, hang on a minute. This is what, I, I, what I meant was, see, the word of the Lord to me about 18 months ago was, Glenn, stop spending time chasing the people you're trying to keep and focus on the people you're trying to reach. Because we can get awfully caught up with who's not coming to church anymore. And we have to hand them over to the Lord and go, that's their deal. Like you heard in my sermon last week, God initiates faith. It's God's in control of their life. Let's stop being the Holy Spirit and let's focus on people who don't know Jesus, the broken and the hurting and the sick in our city, and go and give them an invite to come. Share your story. Remember, you are purposefully placed to have intentional, loving friendships to be able to share your story. Share your story about Jesus. Don't tell them why they need to know Jesus. Tell them why you need to know Jesus. Why he made an impact on you. And then you can share your church. You can pray for them. You can serve them. But Jesus really isn't interested in size of ministry. We have this weird mentality. I wish I could... And you, Some of you are going to go, well, you're bound to say that because of the size of our church. So just so you know that we... we I, I wish... No, I'm not, not going to go there. Uh, when it comes to attendance, we're in this kind of weird... We have maybe a church of 300. You look around the room, there's not 300 people in the room. Because we have this revolving third. We have a third that comes like faithful. But I could potentially preach the same message three times, and two-thirds of the people heard it for the first time. Because <laughs> it revolves in and out. That's just the way that it seems to work in our culture. You know what? I've embraced that. That's fine. I'm not really too frustrated about that. But what I do wish we would change is the idea that somehow big church is better. Because Jesus didn't seem to function like that. In fact, small seems to be better in Jesus' hand, as you'll see in a second. It's a little bit like saying, you know, I have, I have two sons and they're getting tall. I think it's fair to say that Luke, who's 20 now, has probably stopped growing. And, and, but Jack... <laughs> He's catching up. Like, he's really catching up quick. He's grade eight, and he's just a little bit behind Luke. Now, I'm not going to go. Let's say Jack ends up at six foot four. 
We've kind of got little bets going, although betting is not biblical. Is he going to beat his son? I mean, I'm already a lost cause. Sarah was a lost cause years ago. Um, so is he only in the size, in, total, in, in height, not in every other area? I got my first hug off my wife this morning in three and a half months. For those of you who are part of the South family, you'll understand why, because she's not been able to lift her arm high enough <laughs> to get it around. So it was, it was a moment. Um, but I don't look at my two boys and go, well, Luke's better because he's taller. And Jack's not so great because he's shorter. And the day will come maybe that Jack's taller than Luke. Oh, well, now Jack's better because he's... You know, they, they, they're genetically framed to get to a certain height. It's just built into them. I believe churches are the same. It's like God has given us a, a height, a size that we grow into. And, and by his will and by his power, he, he makes it bigger. He determines the size. And we've got to be grateful and we've got to be careful for the, with the growth. And we've got to do things well. And we've got to seek the growth and pray for it with never being frustrated about it. And looking at big churches is not necessarily bigger, better. That's just not the way Jesus actually functions, as you're going to see in a minute. Verse 5 Lifting up his eyes. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so these people may eat? This, I believe, is one of the most powerful verses in John. Lifting up his eyes. You see, Jesus had been ministering and and, and he has, and we know, he's like, he's probably wiped out. He's 100% man, he's 100% God, but we know countless times through the Scripture there's evidence that Jesus got hungry, he gets tired, he gets weary, and, and so he's got these human. He's not kind of floating around an inch off the ground all the time. He's, he actually is human, and so he has every right to focus on me time right now. This is Jesus' time. Just tell the crowds I'm not interested. But he doesn't do that. He does something really quite remarkable. Now, this miracle is found in each of the Gospels, and Matthew adds something to this. You can look it up later. It says this in Matthew, lifting up his eyes, he was filled with compassion. So here's what Jesus did. And and here's the first point. As we look at our city, he lifted up his eyes from that which he had every right to be focused on. It would be a good thing for him to sit and, and take time. It would be a good thing for him to rest. It would be a good thing for him to eat and just spend some time with his friends. But he decides not to do that. He lifts up his eyes. He sees the crowd. That's what the scripture says. And in Matthew, he's filled with compassion. It's, it's suggested in, in John, but it's certainly there. See, the more that we spend time, Christian friends, the more we spend time with Jesus, what we do is that his, his power, his spirit, his likeness becomes more and more evident in us. And so the more we spend time with Jesus, the more we are likely to lift up our eyes and see the need and be filled with compassion. So the first challenging question I have this morning is this. Do we... Do you lift up your eyes on a regular basis, see the crowds, and be filled with compassion for the need that they have? Because if we're so stuck on focusing on our me time and on our time, and me, myself, and I, and we're just collecting money for ourselves, and, and I want this, and we're going to do that, because I deserve it. Trust me, Kelowna is a city of, I deserve this. That people move into Kelowna so that they can live the entitled, leisurely life, and it's wonderful. Go and be on the lake. Go and be on the ski hill. and Go and spend time. Do all those things. It's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that. But the second that that becomes our primary focus and stops us lifting up our eyes to see the crowd, then it becomes problematic. And so Jesus is setting the example here by lifting up his eyes, being filled with compassion. Then he does something fascinating. He asks a question. Again, we talked about this last week. God doesn't ask questions because he doesn't know the answer. He asks questions to bring growth and transformation into our lives. So what is the crowd that we're faced with? This church in this part of the mission. I, I, I've ministered in several cities, and including in Britain, and, and I've, I've had the, the joy of traveling uh, to many parts of the world preaching. And I tell you, Kelowna is unique. Kelowna is unique, and we're arguably in the most affluent part of Kelowna, per capita, the mission area. You might not live in the mission, but Kelowna is, is this anyway. So, and, and so if we lift up our crowd, what is the crowd that we see? 
You know, we certainly have the very poor, the homeless, the people who are experiencing homelessness, the, the, the kids like the girl I described a few minutes ago. We have that in buckets. We also have the working poor. We have people who, as you go through the socioeconomic kind of scale, we have the full range. We also have the rich and broken who are just dang good at hiding it until chaos comes in. And then they can't hide it, but they try and hide it really quick. That, 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 that's what we have. Our crowd is the business community. Our crowd is the families in the mission area and, and in Glenmore. And we have people from the west side all, all over the place. But that's our crowd. That we can't just look at the poor and see them as the crowd, although that is a very real crowd. And we should, be, we should want to meet that need. But we have all sorts of different crowds. And when we start noticing, we'll start asking significant questions. And these significant questions start rallying people, and they get uncomfortable. I think about David and Goliath, and and David came into the camp. I preached on this before. He comes into the camp, and Goliath's in the middle of the valley, and all the Israelites' army are sat around on the hill, and and, and he comes, and this is what the Bible says. You you read it. He comes with with cheese sandwiches for his brothers. And his brothers, you know, they're obviously not very happy to see David. David's about 14. 14! He comes into this camp, middle, and you can imagine him, like, looking around, typical 14-year-old, like, you know, picking up a sword, maybe, playing around with it, and, you know, and he's got cheese sandwiches under his arm, looking for his bros. He finds them, and he says, uh, this, is, this is the Glen Madden English translation. Uh, you can pick up a copy at the connector. Um, what's going on? What's, what's happening with this fellow down here? I mean, he's shouting all sorts of obscenities to God. Why, why aren't you lot doing anything about it? And his brother went, oh, you know, you've just come down. And he says this. This is not my translation now. Uh, you've just come down to watch the fight. What fight? You're all sat around. He's yelling. You're not doing anything. And he asked this question. Isn't there a cause? It says that in the AV, authorized version. Isn't there a cause? Isn't there a reason? Lift up your eyes. Do you not have a reason? And he starts asking questions. He starts obnoxiously asking questions until he gets pulled up into the king and then he finds himself in front of Goliath. So here's one lesson. Please listen to this. It's really easy to sit on the edge of a church looking into a church community with cynicism and criticism, asking questions, but not being willing to actually stand in the middle and do something about it. David was willing. He found himself facing the Goliath. Great question, David. Why don't you do something about it? I have people in this church, and I'm very grateful, who ask tough questions. You know, I think about different, uh, different uh, things that have been going on. I think about right now, the South Art Project. I'll tell you, Wendy, ask, you ask good questions, Wen. You are the David. It's like, oh, she's going to ask me another question. Because here's the question. It's usually, what are we going to do about this? What can we do? But the thing with Wendy, and I don't want to just focus on Wendy because we have many people like this, is that Wendy will ask a question, and then she'll give me a proposal and say, this is what we're going to do. See, I'll, that's great. I remember when I first came to this church, so I don't think this person's here anymore. In fact, I know they're not. They said to me, we need to run an alpha. And I said, great, when do you want to start? Oh, I'm not running. I'm, I don't want to be involved with it. Okay, well, great question, but, you know, we need people. We need people. You start asking questions, then people start getting rallied. Jesus' question, where are we going to buy bread so these people may eat? And he picks on Phil. So Philip starts running the numbers. So he gets, you know, he's like, man alive, this is going to take a lot of money. You actually find out later, it's eight months wages worth of money to feed all these people. So he's been to Costco, he's bought his kayak, and he's like, right, uh, we haven't got enough money. He's consulted with Judas, who's probably not the best person in the world to chat with about money. But, you know, he's come back, and, uh, and he's, he's like, where are we going to buy bread that these people may eat? And Jesus says, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So that's proof that Jesus asked us questions in order to push us on. Philip answered him, 200 denarii, 200 denarii, eight months' wages worth of bread, would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So in other words, it's impossible. We can't do this. I've been to Costco, got my kayak, and then chatted with Judas. It's not going to happen. See, what's really interesting is, is Philip had been around Jesus when Jesus had turned water into wine. So why isn't he like, Jesus, 
this seems to be impossible, but I reckon you can do it. I reckon, I reckon from what I've seen and what I know and what I've heard, I reckon you could do something incredible in this impossible situation. It's, it's, but no, he comes back and says, it's not going to work, Jesus. It, it's impossible. Essentially, he forgets who Jesus is in that moment. Just let that land just for a second. Think about the impossible in your life. Think about the impossible in our city. Think about the impossible in our neighborhoods. Because trust me, I've said this before, but there are a few in the room who get an insight behind those closed doors and it stinks to hell what goes on in our city. So think about the impossible and then think about whether or not we've forgotten who Jesus actually is. We forget who Jesus is. We just see ourselves as inadequate, as ill-prepared. And what Philip's not doing is that he's not bringing God into the equation. He's forgetting about the God equation. I don't say this flippantly because I'm not particularly good at math, very basic math. I'm fairly good at percentages. Um, but, But this is what we tend to do. And you know what? You can apply this not just to church, but to your business, to your family, to your, to your situation, whatever it might be. You can apply this, this equation. And so we forget who Jesus is. So this is what Philip comes with. He's got the vision of, of meeting these people's need. Now, just so you understand, there's 5,000, but only the men were counted. So upwards, maybe of 20,000 people are sat in front of Jesus needing feeding. So to be fair to Philip, that's a difficult vision. Now, that's not to say Philip doesn't want to help. But he's just put in, plus our current resources, it's not possible. And we stop there. Let's think of another plan. Whereas what the Bible teaches, what Christianity is founded on, is this equation. The vision, plus our current resources, plus God's power, all things are possible. See, the same Bible that we believe Christianity comes from, that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sin, took the sin and guilt and shame of the cross, it died with him so that we could have life and life to full. The same Bible says this equation. Because these are his resources anyway. So he gives us a calling, but we forget that actually God's involved. And I'm so cognizant of this right now because we're going through a budget uh, uh, with the church and, and, and I also then think about it in terms of our situation and the impossibility of the mission and the impossibility of the cause that we have in front of us. How on earth, God, how are you going to do this? It's impossible. We need to think of a different plan. Maybe if we've got more lights and lasers, the young people will come in. God's like squinty-eyed going, what? You've forgotten who I am. He'd forgotten who Jesus was. Never, ever ever let resources drive a vision. Never. Always include God's power in the equation. Always. And that's going to entail us as a church and as a, as a community, as a network maybe, but even in our individual lives, in taking risks, taking faith steps. Because if we start with our resources and our abilities and our inadequacies and all the things that limit us, we go, oh man, this is just dire, this is awful, it's all down, it's all going, then we will never, ever, ever meet the cause that God has called us to. Because he always, always, always asks us to include him in the equation. But boy, that takes a risk. A couple of years ago, maybe 18 Months ago, we enacted this 2020 vision in our, in our budget, and we set a faith budget. And for those of you who aren't sure what a faith budget means, is that, you know, this, this was our spending. This is where we want, this is what we wanted to spend, because in order to meet our desired vision, and there was a gap. So we set the vision, the budget, like it was here. Now, some of you who are more accountant-like go, mm, you can't do that. Mm-mm. Just remember this for a second, because something remarkable started to happen. God started providing. The vision was this, is that by 2020, we were going to increase our budget by 20%, our giving by 20%. First year, 10%, so we asked everybody who was already giving to increase their giving by 10%. The next year, we asked for 5%. The following year, which would be 2020, another 5%. And that would have been roughly, Brad, I think about 450,000 increase in giving, roughly. 
To this day, we are way ahead. Way ahead. We're about 80,000 with change off. 50% increase in giving in this church alone. Boom. Love it. Chair of the board, Brad. Um, But now there's a little bit of a squeeze. So what do we do? Do we pull back? Or do we press on? I read the Bible and I see press on. And you go, well, that's really, really silly of going. I'm not saying that we just throw all common sense out the window. As I've said before, you, you trust in God, but you lock your car. You use common sense. But if God has called us to do something to meet the needs and the cause and the call of this city, we do it. Always include God in the equation. And that works in your family. It works in your business. It works. Some of you are Christian business owners, and you're like, should I, shouldn't I? Take it to the Lord and listen because he's interested in your physical needs. He's interested in your business because he wants you to use your business for his kingdom. That's why you got it. To make much of him. So if you go to him, he's your CEO. He's your president. So you go to him and go, okay, Lord, what is it you want me to do? Do this. I don't know. That, that. I don't know whether we can do that. I tell you, I've heard stories of business guys and business women who have done that, and they've seen remarkable increase. Remarkable. They increase their giving. Often it starts with that, by the way. <laughs> it's beautiful. We need to continually ask God what he wants to do with our resources. Always. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is Gideon, and, and uh, just a fascinating character. And he starts off with this kind of weak, scared, again, very young, uh, potentially a teenager, young adult, and, and I can't go into all, but basically Israel was being completely surrounded by Amalekites and, and Midianites and just a huge army. And so after the initial calling that Gideon gets, God calls Gideon to go and fight the huge army. The Bible says the army was so big, it was like locusts piled up on top of each other. There was more people in that army than there were, the Bible says, sand on the seashore. This is a big cause. This is a impossible. And so Gideon manages to get 30,000 guys together. Let's do it. And then God goes, hmm, it's too many. It literally says that. So God is either awful at math, praise the Lord, or he's got a bigger, better plan. So he says, just, just send 20,000 home. What? And then he said, uh, and said, I've got another test for them. Send them all down to drink. And any of them that don't drink properly, uh, you can send them home. So Gideon does this test. He's left with 300 fellas. Probably not the smartest ones. <laughs> Come on, let's do it. And then he goes, uh, you're not using swords. No, uh, we're going to use trumpets. Because a really bad trumpet player will make anybody die. We're going to use trumpets, and we're going to use, uh, we're going to use clay pots. You ready? <laughs> Can you imagine Gideon telling these guys this plan? That's why I don't think they're the smartest bunch in the draw. You know, they're a bit thick. I was saying Britain, they're thicker than two short planks. Just, look. Yeah, you're like, so with 300 of us, it's going to be great. There's millions of them. 300 of us, but we've got pots, we've got trumpets. Who's in? Yeah, but, uh, can I see a projection on that, please, Gideon? You got any uh, PowerPoint, maybe? Because I'm going to need some clarification. No, no, no. They obediently follow after the impossible God. And you read the story, they flee before them. It's unbelievable. We need to continually ask God what he wants to do with our plans and resources. There's a lad. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? At least Andrew's coming up with a plan. Here's what I like about Andrew. In the, uh, in the AV or in the King James Version, it actually says, there's a lad. I like that because, first of all, Andrew's clearly Scottish. <laughs> Secondly, he's got a Scottish name and arguably probably wearing a kilt. And he's there, and he's like, ah, there's a lad. And he's got some fish, and he's got some bread. What are you going to do? Great plan, Andrew. It's awesome. Do you know what, how Andrew, what he has? He's got a small amount of resources, a willing people, a small amount of faith, probably, 
but a massive expectancy. That's what we need, friends, at South. That's what we need. We have a small amount of resources. We have a small group of people. 300 against, what is it, 150, 200,000 people. In. Better odds than Gideon had, by the way. His resources weren't very good, and, you know, ours could be better. But he had faith, and he had expectancy. And you know what's beautiful is that's enough for Jesus. So we don't have any excuse. He can multiply because God does a lot with our little. He multiplies it. Why does he do that? Why, why does he choose to do it this way? I think the answer is really simple. Because who is it that gets all the glory? How exciting is it that when God suddenly does a miracle that blows your mind and you go, how is that even possible? Well, the God equation was in effect because it was his power, his resources, our faith, our expectancy, our hard work. Remember not sitting on the edge and saying, this is what we should do, this is what we shouldn't do, but I'm not going to do anything about it. It's like people who are in, I'm in, what do you want? What do you want, Lord? What do you want me to give? And sometimes we look at the enormity of the cause and we go, well, there's no point me giving my small amount. And that's wrong. That's actually prideful. You start with the small, and before long you find yourself you're able to give more, and you give more. I haven't got time. That, that is the number, I'm too busy. That's the number one thing I hear as a pastor. I haven't got time right now. Thus saith the Lord, you will never have time. Like I say to young adults, I said this to a, a, a beautiful couple in our church the other day, you'll never afford kids. And all the parents said, Amen. You can't, you just won't. So if you're waiting to afford them, which they weren't, you... You're going to be waiting a long time. And so you'll, you'll, nev- you'll never be able to give enough. But God's power, God's power, God loves to do a little, sorry, a lot with our little. So let's just backtrack. When we lift up our eyes, when we're filled with compassion, when we ask significant questions, and we step forward and say, I'm available, and here's the little amount I can give. Here's the little amount of time I can give right now. Here's the little amount of money I can give right now. You will never afford to give. That, that's just, the enemy will make sure of that. So I'll make that sacrifice of time, make that sacrifice of money, make that sacrifice of, uh, of, of, of enthusiasm, and I'm going to be at the prayer meeting, and I'm going to go out, and I'm going to take that card, and I'm going to give. And that force of enthusiasm added to the God equation where God's power does work, then incredible things happen. Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them. Uh, do you know what I love? Is that Jesus could have made, <laughs> he could have made the, the keg multiplied by a million <laughs> appear right there. Have at it, my friends. He could have had steak, he could have had, he could have uh, fries, and other things and he could have had wine and it could have just been this big party but what he actually used was actually the food of the poor barley loaves and fish food of the poor but he gives thanks for it he gives thanks for it he's grateful he's grateful praise thank you God that you can bless Jesus and he gives thanks when we give our little he took the loaves God delights to use the small to accomplish the impossible. Think about Samson and the jawbone. Think about David and Goliath. Think about Mary. Teenager, 14, 15. You see there's a pattern? 14, 15-year-old Mary. Think about Jesus. He was born into poverty. He, was, he swung a hammer for a living. And you know he was, he was from the back end of the back end. Like I said the other day, uh, like I tried to think of a place... And I think I came up with Lumbee, which is probably unfair on Lumbee, but um, it, like insignificant. But God does incredible things with the insignificant. And so the question is, do we live like this? But here's a commonality with all these people. They were all filled and anointed with the presence and the power of God. See, Jesus was filled and anointed with the presence and power of God in order to make that happen, to multiply, to actually use something small for his kingdom. David, anointed from head to toe by the prophet Samuel. Samson, anointed. Gideon, anointed. Mary, the Bible tells us in Luke that she was overshadowed. The word is dunamis. Overshadowed with power. It literally means somebody who is better than. It's where we get our word dynamite. She was overshadowed with dunamis power. Because Jesus loves to bring fullness. When they had eaten their fill, 
he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had, had been eaten. There's a whole under-sermon here that I'd love to talk about, about the little lad. Can you imagine him coming home, probably with a basket? Where'd you get that? Where have you been? With his mum. You know, I, I just love that image. Like, that little lad, big guy. Like, what's going on? My mum will never believe me. But you see, this passage speaks of abundance, of filling. They'd eaten their fill. The thing that I was wrestling most with this morning as I was prepping this sermon, I'm going to come to communion now. So we talk about lifting up our eyes. We talk about being filled with compassion. We talk about living like Jesus and seeing and asking questions and taking a step and actually doing something. But can I say this? And please, please hear me when I say this. None of that will come to anything at all outside of the presence and the power of God. In fact, that in itself can become a religious act with no power. You can serve the poor without God. You can serve your neighbor in pride. You can serve and you can see. You can even be motivated by some compassion. You can do all of that out of your own power. I can get up here on a Sunday morning. I can speak from just communication skill. But every Sunday morning, I, I pray and I ask God to fill me with his presence and power in the same way he filled Gideon and Samson and, and David and Jesus and, and, and Mary, that he would overshadow me with his power and presence, his spirit. And then I read the scriptures and then I find a scripture like this from Jesus. He, Jesus literally told his disciples that you will not be able to do anything without the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. All you're going to do is work hard, use resources and burn each other out and probably then split. He said, he, he, said, he didn't use the split, split side and burn, but he said you will do nothing outside of the power of God. So here's what he says at the end of Luke 24. And this, I would love for you to learn this scripture. I am positively sending the promise of my Father upon you. What was the promise? The promise was the Holy Spirit. You can read about it in Acts chapter 1 and 2. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That has been my prayer now for two or three weeks. Father, clothe me with power from on high. I need your power. I need your anointing. I don't need your uh, my skills or anything. I need your power. I need your voice. See, to, tho- to those he gives a call, he gives a promise. And we have been called to the mission. And the young people who've just come in and you're kind of waiting on what's happening next, let me tell you, you are called to this city. But God has given you a promise. And the promise is, is that you will be clothed with power from on high. And what I love about the scripture is that same promise is exactly the same for us now as it was for them. They have a mission. It's the same mission as us. Very similar culture, actually. We have a promise, the same promise as them. But here's the difference. Here's the difference. He gives them an instruction. I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed. So in other words, go to the city, go to the upper room, and sit and pray. And do not leave that room until you are filled and clothed with the power from on high. And boy, did God ever follow up his promise. But the difference between them and us, and I say this lovingly and with conviction, and I have confessed this and asked for forgiveness for this, we do not sit and persevere and wait for the power of God from on high. We try and do it ourselves because we think our equation is better. Because it puts us in control. And it doesn't work. They could do nothing without it. They gave themselves no rest until they received power from on high. And I wrestled by that this morning. Because we come to this part of our service where we come to communion. God never called us to look up, be filled with compassion, ask tough questions, 
to chase after and work hard. He never, ever, ever asked us to do it in our own strength and power. Never. He delights in using the small and the weak and the insignificant filled with his power. So the big question then is this. Church, South, Willow Park Church, for those who are listening online and on, on recording. What do we do with it? We go, all oh, nice sermon, Pastor. And then we go on and carry on in our own power, and our own equation, looking at our resources and dictating vision from that. Or do we actually take this word seriously? Because all I've done is just told you a story and go, okay, some stuff I need to bring to the Lord. And I've been putting it off. But I need to confess and I need to ask forgiveness because I've been holding on instead of letting go. I've been miserly with my money and with my time and my energy because I'm fearful of what it might mean. I'm reluctant to jump back into church because of what church did to me years ago. That I think I'm actually a little bit angry at God because he doesn't seem to be coming through with the prayer that I pray every day. That I've actually forgotten who Jesus is. That he got smashed beyond recognition, the Bible says, on that cross. And we're going to be, sounds strange celebrating Easter, but that's the right word in a couple of weeks. But broken. It says his back was like a plowed field. And he was smashed on that cross because he loved me so much that he wanted to take all the crap, filthy rags, menstruation rags, is what the Bible actually says. And it and put it on the cross with him and it dies with him and gives me freedom and life. Why did he do that? So that I could go into the world, lift up my eyes with compassion, the same love and power that he has and so that I can chase after the cause that he's given me. That's why. Not so I can live a comfortable life desperately trying to protect my kids from all the nasty things in the world. That is not our mission. But it starts in moments like this where maybe for the first time in worship you're going to get on your knees... And who gives a rip what people think? Let's just be conscious of yourself. You immediately go, no, no, I'm not doing that. Is that pride? Or is that actually humility? That you're going to get on your knees and you're going to cry out to God and ask for forgiveness for the way that we've lived our lives with our eyes down in our own power. Because communion is the perfect spiritual segue into doing this. We desperately need to be filled with the power of God because otherwise we're a really boring, elaborate social club. That's all we are without the power and presence of God. And it starts in moments like this. I love the words in that song that Luke led. It talks about how heaven and earth becomes thin. Did you notice that lyric? There's like a thinness. It feels like heaven and earth is close. Father, I pray that over the next few minutes that you would make the distance between heaven and earth thin in this room. Lord, we're, we're a broken people. We are insignificant. We are small. We are afraid. Often we're confused. We're willing to work hard. But Lord, we want to walk in the God equation. We want to walk in your power. We want to walk in your presence and your filling. And your word says, Lord, that if your people who are called by your name, and, and that's, that's us, Lord, would humble themselves and ask for forgiveness and healing would come upon their land. Father, forgive us for looking at the cause, sometimes, Lord, in judgment for the terrible things that are happening in our culture without being willing to step into the fray. Forgive us, Lord, for not being willing to walk across a room and talk to somebody or pray for them. But more than that, Lord, 
Forgive us for our lack of waiting upon you to be filled by you. Holy Spirit, fill us, I pray. God, come into this room. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Lord, I pray against the spirit of lies. Lord, spirit of fear. Spirit of condemnation. Lord, I pray against the work of the enemy in this room right now that would curtail and stop people from responding. Lord, I pray that heaven and earth would be thin. Lord, I pray for the young people sat at the back. Lord, let them be the Gideons, the Samsons, the Marys, the Davids. Let them ask tough questions, but Lord, more than that, fill them with your spirit. Lord, I pray against the yeah buts that are going on in minds right now. Yeah but. But Lord, we just fix our attention upon you, Jesus. Lord, let there be transformation. Let there be change. what we're going to do. You can keep your eyes closed. Luke's just going to play quietly in the background for a couple of minutes and I want to rush into just singing. We're going to spend some time worshipping in a second and the first song, you can come forward and you can take some bread and some juice as, as we share communion together for those who love and believe in Jesus and confess Him as Lord that is open to you. Let it be more than just some rote act that we do on a regular basis. Pray over it. And then we're going to sing another song. And then in our final song, there's going to be a prayer team that comes forward and make themselves available for any prayer at all. But we're going to pray that you get filled with an anointing, filled with your spirit. So let's just take a couple of minutes before we do that. Just praying quietly. And then we can sing.